0: Then, which is Micah chapter 7, the first seven verses. What misery is mine? I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land, not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright worse than a thorn hedge. The day God visits you has come, the day your watchmen sound the alarm. Now is the time of your confusion. Do not trust a neighbour, put no confidence in a friend. Even with the woman who lies in your embrace, guard the words of your lips. For a son dishonours his father, a daughter rises up against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the the members of his own household. But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God my Saviour. My God will hear me. Let's pray and then we'll get into the passage. Father God, thank you that we can gather together tonight under your word. Pray that you would guide me as I speak. Um, Please would anything that um, that is not from you just be forgotten and that anything that is from you would stick with us and that you would do your work among us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'd like to start by asking you to picture with me two children Both are waiting for their respective fathers to come home However, they're each feeling very differently about it One is excited, it's her birthday Her dad is coming back with a gift that he's promised for her For her, daddy coming home is a source of great joy and excitement But just across the street there's a little boy Who's also waiting for his dad to come home But he's feeling very different. He got into a fight at school today and he knows that when his dad finds out about it, he's going to be in really deep trouble. So for him, dad coming home is not a source of great joy. It's a source of trepidation. Both children watching out for their fathers to come home. One of them is straining her eyes to see her dad's car coming down the street. The other one is hiding behind a curtain, peeking out nervously. So waiting and watching can mean very different things depending on what or who uh, we're waiting for and what we expect to happen when that moment finally arrives. And we're going to see in Micah 7 tonight that both Micah himself and the people of Judah are waiting and watching for God. But they have very different expectations about the future, very different emotions as they wait and watch. So to recap some of the historical context that Micah was prophesying into, um, he lived in the late 8th century BC, in other words, around 700 years before Jesus. The Israelites are split into two kingdoms. You've got Israel in the north with Samaria as the capital and Judah in the south with Jerusalem as the capital. It's hard to tell exactly when Micah wrote this passage, but it's possible that Israel, um, the northern kingdom had already gone into exile into the Assyrians. And Judah in the south was also under threat. And it's important for us to realize the way the Bible interprets those historical events of military defeat and exile is that it was really about God's judgment on his people for their sin. And it's been a common theme throughout Micah, as we've seen week by week, that people need to repent of their sin, otherwise judgment is coming. And this passage is no different. Throughout it Micah reminds the people of their rebellion against God and he goes into great detail describing what that sin consists of and what consequences it has. And I think one of the things that really stood out for me as I was preparing this sermon was just the destructiveness of sin. It's like a deadly virus that has spread throughout the population infecting people, causing a range of unpleasant symptoms and striking people down. So let's jump into the passage at verse 2. In that verse, we see just how widespread the virus is. Micah says that not one upright person remains in the land and that everyone lies in wait to shed blood. I don't know if you've ever played the board game Pandemic. Well, I know probably some of you have. (laughs) It's basically a cooperative board game where the players are working together to try and stop the spread of a, a disease around the world. Well, if sin was the disease, then by the time you get to the point that Micah's describing here, you've probably lost the board game. Everyone is infected with sin. And this sin takes different forms. So in verse 2, they've got this element of violence to it. Micah speaks about how people are lying in wait to shed blood. People are hunting each other like you would hunt an animal. And if anyone seeks to get justice for crimes committed against them, there's more bad news. The rulers and the judges are corrupt, it says in verse 3. Justice goes to the highest bidder. The powerful conspire together to ensure that whatever they desire is accomplished, no matter the human cost. And even the most upright seeming among these elites is really even worse than a a thorny bush, he says in verse 4. So the sin is all-pervasive. It has infected everyone. Paul says something quite similar in Romans chapter 3. He says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which should make us sit up and take notice because Paul in Romans 3 is talking about the whole of humanity. So it means that the sin pandemic that we see in Micah 7 is not just a problem for a group of Middle Eastern people getting on for 3,000 years ago, It's a problem for us today as the human race. So you may think you're not as bad as the people being described here, that you're not a murderer, you don't abuse your power. But remember how Jesus says that if you hate someone in your heart, then you've effectively murdered them. The sin of hate is a stain on our record before God, and therefore under God's law we're guilty and we deserve judgment. So everyone is infected with sin. But more than that, it is destructive. It has consequences. Sometimes it's kind of easy to hear everyone is a sinner and you just kind of shrug it off. Oh, so everyone's a sinner. Oh, well, at least we're all in the same boat then. But the problem is the boat is the Titanic. The fact that the whole of humanity is in the same boat does not stop the fact that the boat is sinking. And then in verses 5 and 6 of our passage... Micah sets out some of the consequences of this sin pandemic. The whole of society seems to be breaking down. Neighbours can no longer trust each other, verse 5. You don't really know who your friends are anymore. Remember, this is a people that living under the constant threat of military defeat, with a very real possibility that they will be subjected to either foreign rule or exile. So not being able to trust those living around you is a real problem. Last year, I was fortunate enough to go on holiday to Jersey. You may know that the Channel Islands were the only part of the British Isles that were under Nazi occupation during the Second World War. And if you tour the um, War Tunnels Museum in Jersey, which I would recommend, it documents how the islanders were faced with this awful dilemma, really, about how much they could resist the occupying forces. And what could they say um, to each other in front of these German soldiers who... On a small island, it's only nine miles by five miles. These German soldiers were never far away, so could they even um, really communicate with each other openly? Well, Micah's advice to the people in his day was that nobody could be trusted. You get the sense that he's not saying that as literal advice for us today. I don't think we should be taking verse 5 as instruction that we can't trust anyone, but... It does sound like this is how bad the situation had got at the time. Notice how various close relationships are destroyed by sin. You've got marriages ruined as husband and wife can't even trust each other with the words spoken in the most private of situations. On top of that, you've got father-son, mother-daughter and daughter-in-law-mother-in-law relationships also tarnished by one generation rising up in rebellion against another. So by the end of verse 6, the enemy is not just some foreign army out there. It's the people that you should be able to rely on most of all. The people nearest to you that are spoken of as the enemy. Now on one level, this is a description of a particular society at a particular point in time. Um, But on another level, I think it applies to all people at all times, including our own today. To see that, you only need to look around at our society and observe many of the same issues that Micah highlights here. Our world is not so very different from Micah's world. Just look at the news this week. We've had shootings and stabbings in London. We've had people lying in wait to shed blood, as Micah might put it. On a broader level, we see lots of broken relationships, high rates of divorce, dysfunctional families, and not just people out there in the world, but even um, within the church, we're certainly not immune to any of these issues. We all know what it is like to live with the consequences of sin. So sin is not just a sort of legal status before God that makes no difference to our day-to-day lives. We're faced with its consequences every single day. And that's true in a very indirect way, as the Bible teaches that Absolutely everything that's not right in the world is in some sense a result of uh, the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But it's also true in a slightly more direct sense that sin in our lives does have consequences for ourselves and for the people around us. So to give just one example, if you've spoken unkind words to somebody, that might stick with them for years and cause problems in the relationship years down the line. And of course... There are ways we can learn to treat each other more kindly. There are ways we can work to heal damaged relationships, and we should. And God is gracious, and often he restrains the the consequences of of sin to an extent. But ultimately, we need salvation. We need sin to be dealt with once and for all, so that its corrupting presence is gone forever. Well, the good news is that we do have a saviour. Even in this passage, which seems mostly rather doom and gloom, we see that. In verse 7, Micah says, But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God my Saviour. My God will hear me. You get the sense, don't you, as you read the passage, that being a prophet was not just a job for Micah. It's very personal. The passage both begins and ends with Micah talking about himself, um, firstly, in verse one, grieving deeply over the sin of his people, and then at the end at verse seven expressing his own hope and confidence in the Lord. And I think the bookends, each end of the passage, give us a bit of a clue as to the structure of this passage, which in technical terms is called a chiasm. So it's a way of writing that crops up quite often in the Bible, in which the first and the last parts of the passage form a pair, and then the second and the second to last parts of the passage form another pair. And then you work your way into the middle, and you get a kind of climax in the middle of the passage, which the reader should pay extra attention to. And you know that's the middle of the chiasm, because there's no other verse or um, idea to pair up with it. So I like to think of it like a sandwich, you've got two pieces of bread on the outside, and then you've got two layers of butter, and you work your way in to the meat in the middle of the sandwich. So in between Micah's sadness of the, at the sin of the people in verse 1, and his personal commitment to wait in hope for God in verse 7 you've got a kind of a pair there and then after that in verses 2 to 3 he describes the sin of the people and that's kind of paired up with verses 5 to 6 where he details some of the consequences of the sin of the people Um, but then I think the real heart of the passage is well the second half of verse 4 and in that verse um, Micah speaks about a day when God is coming to visit his people But this is not a pleasant social visit. This is a day which requires the watchman to sound an alarm. This is a time of confusion, it says. So as I've said, at this time, Judah was under constant threat from um, invading armies. And watchmen would have been an absolutely essential first line of defense to give an early warning of an impending attack. But in this verse, the watchmen are not watching out for invading armies, such as the Assyrians. No, the Assyrians aren't the real danger here. The shocking truth is that it is God that the people need to be watching out for. He is the enemy whose appearance is is a cause for alarm. And yet, despite all that, Micah is still confident in his own personal salvation, isn't he? We can see that in verse 7. So why? It's one of a number of big questions that I think this passage raises for us questions like, whose side is God really on? Is he mainly for us or mainly against us? How can we know? If God is coming to judge, is there any room left for hope? Is Micah right to be so confident in his own salvation? How can God be Micah's saviour, but an enemy to the people? Well, we don't really get a full answer to those questions in this passage, As in many Old Testament passages, you've got this tension between God being a holy God who will judge sin, but also a God of salvation, a merciful God who will forgive sin. But it probably won't surprise you to hear that the answer to all of those questions really centres around Jesus. So given what Jesus says about how all of the scriptures point towards him in some way, I want to kind of spend the rest of our time in Micah tonight looking to see where Jesus is in this passage. Um, you may have noticed that earlier I skipped over verse 1, didn't really speak about it. So let's go back there now. At the start of the passage, Micah pictures himself walking through a vineyard at harvest time, but except there is no harvest. He says, There's no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. Now immediately the mention of a vineyard would ring a lot of bells for Micah's first hearers and perhaps it does for us too because Israel or Judah is often pictured as a vineyard in the Bible with the fruit standing for um, the godly lives that God desires to see in his people. But the reason for Micah's misery is that he doesn't see any of this fruit in the people's lives and to the extent that the prophets are spokesman or kind of mouthpieces for God, then I think we're meant to understand that this is also God's verdict, not just Micah's verdict on the people. And then at the end of verse 1 we get this mention of figs. Does that remind you of a passage elsewhere in the Bible? certainly reminded me of the accounts of Jesus cursing the fig tree in Matthew 21 and Mark 11. So in those passages Jesus is walking into Jerusalem just a few days before he's crucified. And he also sees a fig tree. And in Mark's account in particular, we're told that Jesus was hungry. You could almost say, in the words of Micah, he had a craving for figs. However, Jesus, just like Micah, does not find any fruit at all on the fig tree. And Mark tells that story of Jesus cursing the fig tree in two parts. Um, And in between those two parts, there's the story of Jesus going and overturning the tables in the temple. And Mark wants us to see that this fig tree incident is a kind of acted-out parable. So Jesus is coming to the place where there ought to be the most spiritual fruit in the entire nation. It's the spiritual life of the people of God, the temple, the most godly living. But instead, what does he find? He finds people using the temple as nothing more than a marketplace. They're more interested in making money than they are in worshipping God. And so the fruitless fig tree was symbolic of the spiritual fruitlessness of the people in Jesus' day, and so it was 700 years earlier in Micah's day. But what do we learn from that, really, other than it being an interesting point of similarity between passages in two different parts of the Bible? Well, I think one thing is that it shows us that what God is looking for throughout time has not changed. Whether Old or New Testament, God is still looking for people who will live holy lives, producing spiritual fruit. So think of fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, um, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That still applies today. Also, I mean, Jesus' cursing of the fig tree highlights for us how central he is to this question of what God desires in his people. His coming really exposed people's hearts and where they were towards God. The fact that the spiritual leaders of the people largely rejected Jesus led to judgment and that was symbolized with the fig tree. And if we need more evidence of how central Jesus is, he alludes to another verse in our Micah passage elsewhere in the Gospels. Just look with me again at verse 6. That verse might sound familiar because Jesus seems to almost quote it in Luke 12 when he says, Do you think I have come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Notice how Jesus uses the exact same three family relationships as Micah does: father and son, mother and daughter, mother-in-law, daughter-in-law. But Jesus is saying that his coming will bring division rather than peace. Jesus divides opinion. He always has and he always will. Even amongst close family units, uh, Jesus says there will be division because of him. Why? Well, because he's not only the saviour, it's also a person's response to Jesus that ultimately either reveals saving faith or shows a lack of saving faith. Not that faith is something that we can create within ourselves, but as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is the litmus test of faith. Our response to him indicates the state of our hearts. So it will be our response to Jesus that determines who we are in Micah 7. Are we the people to whom God is an enemy that we're afraid of? Or are we Micah, who speaks of God as a personal saviour, one who he has a relationship with? I think that a follower of Jesus today is in many ways in a similar position to Micah. We too are waiting for the Lord to come. We, like Micah, know that God is a Saviour and that He hears us. We too are, or at least should be, distressed by the presence of sin in the world. And so, we, like Micah, wait with hope for the Lord. We don't have to wait for God as if He were an invading army or an enemy to be feared. But why? What makes the difference? Is it because God's character has changed and he no longer cares about sin as much as he used to? No, God does not and cannot change. The difference is Jesus. Because Jesus came and lived a life of perfect obedience to God, then died on the cross, taking the punishment, the judgment that we deserve for our our faithlessness, We don't have to look towards his second coming with fear, instead we can look forward with hope. And even as Jesus went into Jerusalem and cursed that fig tree for its lack of fruit, he was just a matter of days away from dying for the sins of his people. It was because of the lack of fruit that he had to die. And at the cross, that tension between God being a holy God who punishes sin, but also a merciful God who forgives sin, is resolved. Micah, as a prophet, could call out people's sin, he could urge people to repent, but he couldn't actually save them. In fact, he also needed a saviour. And we needed someone who was more than just a prophet. And Jesus is that person. And so we can wait in hope for God, because for those trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection, God is no longer an enemy. As Paul says in Colossians, once, you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So what's our response? What difference is any of this really going to make to you this week? I think, firstly, our response, if you're someone who's trusting in Jesus and living with him as your Lord, is just one of praise and thanksgiving. Give thanks that you are no longer alienated from God and that he is no longer an enemy. Give thanks that his coming will not be an occasion of terror for you, but it's something you can look forward to with hope. Now, Of course, if you're here tonight as someone who's not trusting in Jesus, this may not apply to anyone here, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, If you don't think there's anything you need saving from, Micah has a very clear message for you too. He says, God is coming. For those who are opposed to him and his rule, that is a reason to sound the alarm. For the people in Micah's day, military defeat did not uh, necessarily come instantly. Jerusalem and Judah withstood enemy invasion for about another hundred years or so after Micah's preaching but it did eventually come and likewise the Bible says that one day everyone will have to give an account for their life before God and the only acceptable defence to before a perfectly holy God is to say that you took refuge in Jesus and that you allowed his perfection to become yours so let's not um, go away from here thinking that there's no danger and that you can just safely ignore everything that's been said. We don't know how long we have left to take refuge in Jesus if you haven't already done so. But also, please don't go away thinking that there's no hope. Jesus died for people like you and me who have no other defence before a perfectly holy God. But for those of us who are trusting in Jesus, how do we live now in the light of the fact that though he is coming back we, like Micah, have to wait for him. What does that waiting and that watching look like? Well, the New Testament book of 2 Peter picks up on this theme of waiting for Jesus' return and runs with it fairly extensively. So we're going to finish tonight in, in 2 Peter 3, in verses 11 to 14. And you may like to turn to it in your Bibles. I think it's on page 1224. Yep, of the church Bibles. The context is Peter's talking about the day of the Lord or uh, the day of God. uh, When Jesus will return and the world as we know it um, will be brought to an end. And it will usher in this new era, this new creation. So I'm just going to read verses 11 to 14 of 2 Peter 3. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. In other translations, the phrase which in the NIV is um, translated as looking forward is translated as waiting. But I think actually the use of that phrase, looking forward, is quite helpful. Um, It reminds us that for those of us trusting in Jesus, this future day, the day of the Lord or the day of God, isn't something to fear, it's something we can be positive about. We, just like Micah, can watch in hope. It's not that we should take any of this lightly. Like I said earlier, we have to give an account of ourselves before God, and that is a sobering thought which should make us reflect on how we're living. But ultimately, we know that we will not be condemned by God if we're trusting in Jesus. I find that often my own attitude towards the day of the Lord and the eternity that follows is dictated quite a lot by my circumstances. So if everything's going pretty well in life, to be honest, I don't really want Jesus to come back because I'm quite happy the way things are. I don't really want anything to change. And of course, if we see correctly how amazing and glorious our future, our eternal future would be, then that's a crazy and foolish way to think. But I know it's a trap that I often fall into, just being too focused on the here and now, just daily life, with all its busyness and the ups and downs. But maybe you're here tonight and actually the opposite is true for you. You're going through a really hard time. Maybe life is getting you down. Maybe the thought that actually one day all of this world as we know it will come to an end and there'll be a new era with no more death or crying or mourning or pain. Maybe that's all that keeps you going and gets you out of bed in the morning. Well, if that's you, can I encourage you to just hold on to that thought and that attitude Um, While it would be great if those things that are getting you down are removed from your life and that is something you can pray for, the idea of that longing for a better world and a perfect world is a really healthy desire. And I think it's one of the reasons why a lot of the New Testament talks so positively about suffering. And more than that, for all of us living in a broken and sinful world, the thought that one day all of this will end, all evil will be punished and God will be seen for who he really is... That should be an encouragement. Micah was absolutely distraught at the sin of the people around him. Are we as heartbroken by the sin that we observe both around us and especially within us? Again, the fact that things will not always be this way should give us fresh hope. So my prayer as we go from here this evening is is that we can all be a little bit more eternally minded. For you, that might mean finding hope in a seemingly hopeless life situation. It might mean finding joy in your relationship with Jesus rather than in the circumstances of the moment, even if things are going really well. It might mean taking a risk and speaking to your colleagues at work about your faith, even though they might think you're weird. It might mean on the World Mission Sunday that we've been thinking about, It might mean pursuing an opportunity to serve God in another part of the world. For all of us, Peter says, uh, we should be living holy and godly lives as we wait for Jesus' return. The Bible has loads to say about what that looks like in specific instances. But it doesn't necessarily need to look spectacular, and it probably won't most of the time. But you kind of know godliness when you see it. You know when someone's life resembles Christ's in a way that's just really recognisable. I find that older Christians are often the best examples of this. Um, They've had a bit more time for the Holy Spirit to kind of smooth off their rough edges than perhaps younger people have, so we can look to them as an example too. But whatever stage we're at, our lives would be very different if we spent more time with our heads up, looking at the eternal realities uh, that are to come, rather than looking down at our feet, focusing purely on our circumstances. It's not that our lives now are insignificant. Please don't hear me saying that. But unless we look to eternity, our perspective on the here and now will be completely distorted. There's that phrase, isn't there? Too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. It's not a very helpful phrase, really. The fact is, the more genuinely heavenly minded we are, thinking of uh, the new heavens and the new earth to come, the more lasting good we will actually do here with our lives in the here and now so Micah 7 reminds us that we live in a world infected with a disease called sin which if left untreated results in the disintegration of society and ultimately uh, in judgement and death but thankfully we have a cure a saviour it's not a pill to take but it's a person to get to know a person named Jesus he is coming back as judge but he died in our place so we have hope so let's live today this week and always with that hope in the front and center of our vision let me pray for us now and then we'll sing father god we recognize and repent of our sin which is a cause for grief We're sorry for the times when we've been blasé about sin and its consequences in our own lives and in others' lives and in the world. But we thank and praise you that you have sent a saviour. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he died for us, taking the judgement that we deserve, so that we can have hope, so that we can be your friend and not your enemy. We pray that we would be more eternally minded as we wait, wait and watch for you to come again, and that we would live holy and godly lives which honour and glorify you. In his name we pray. Amen.